Welcome to COVID Lawcast. Today we have Dana Weefer, who has been an active litigator in this space. And I'm very interested in the theories that she is propounding in her litigation. So we're going to get an update today for her about her litigation. Dana, you have a very interesting background to me. I used to serve on a city council here in Akron. I understand you've had some local government experience. So if you would, tell us what your political background is, how you came to the law, and why you chose to launch lawsuits against the president of the United States. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was like five years old. So that's that's an easy one. My political background mirrors more and more people's recently, because I think a lot of people are moving from left to right. So when I came of age, it was right when 9-11 happened and the Republican Party was pushing the Patriot Act and the establishment of both parties were doing the wars. I've always been very anti-war, very pro-privacy, very pro-freedom. And so I ended up a Democrat and became very active uh, in the party for about 10 years. I ran for office multiple times was active in the party. I moved to Hoboken in 2008, I think, and became involved in local politics there. And Hoboken is in Hudson County, New Jersey, which is like notorious for local corruption. So I cut my teeth in Hoboken. It was really interesting. I had a lot of experience just because of my activity there with vote by mail fraud. So we had vote by mail fraud in Hoboken long before it became public knowledge in the nation. And so Back in 2015, I ran for council there, and there's actually videos of me then standing in front of a senior building being like, there's voting machines in the building, but 90% of the building has voted by mail and explaining the vote by mail fraud that was going on there. That was back in 2015, and three people were eventually either pled guilty or convicted by a jury of voter fraud in that election, so I had that experience there, and then I also was chairwoman of the Hoboken Housing Authority. And when I was chairwoman of the Hoboken Housing Authority, the executive director was also an assemblyman. And I uncovered the fact that he was giving out no bid contracts to his campaign contributors and blew the whistle on it. And it became like this really crazy drawn out urban political brawl. So I was able to sort of cut my teeth on that as well. So that was my political background. And then after Donald Trump got elected, I woke up. I realized that a lot of the information I had been given over the last several years was false. I recognized that what the party stood for had changed. And so I sort of became a Republican and have been very active in the Republican Party. The thing that's been constant is that I've always been very pro-freedom. Liberty and freedom is important to me. And so that's how I am here today doing this. That's, you know, that's so fascinating. I I, I can tell you, I'm not going to get into my details, but I can almost track the same kind of process as back in the <laughs> 90s, including housing authority issues. And really? Again. Yes. Wow. So you're familiar with the housing authority. Oh my goodness. It, it is a, it is a source of contracting and corruption We had very similar issues leading to eventually a conviction here in Akron. I was a Democratic councilman, but, you know, we assisted in securing five convictions here with our our city. I appreciate everything you did. What uh, did you feel and did you have any threats over those processes that you were engaged in? And and, I mean, did you have people threaten you personally in any way when you were going through that? So nothing that I seriously feared, but yes, there were personal threats against me. We had people protesting um, 
outside of the homes of commissioners. We were all sued personally for racial discrimination. Oh, um, not because there was any discrimination, but just because that's a useful way <laughs> to shut down public discourse sometimes. It was very threatening. Our final meeting, so I had to rally the board to vote to oust this executive director, even though he basically told all the residents that we were going to tear down their homes. He spread all sorts of lies about us. And the final meeting became so out of control because they figured they just wanted to shut it down because I had the votes. I had my board with me. They were like, the only way we're going to get out of this is shut this meeting down. And that's what they did. They became so calamitous that the police officer shut the meeting down and hit us in the basement of City Hall until they were able to get the situation under control. For me personally, it was a, it was an experience. I was ready to shut it down. Like I was, I was demoralized. I, my board was tired. I'm, it was, it's hard to be yelled and screamed at like that. And I had one board member who looked at me and was like, you can't do it. Like we have, we have to do this tonight. And it was because of him. We went back upstairs and did the vote, but it's funny how one person can make such an, an impact on how things go. That was in 2014. Wow. Well, that's that's remarkable. And I, I actually I get some of the answers that are coming as well, because once you've experienced this abuse of authority with government, you become aware of it. And I'd like you to describe how you got onto the COVID litigation and, and what triggered your concerns initially. I've always been very pro-freedom. It's one of my top values. So I was immediately on red alert, even with just the lockdowns. And But I didn't think that I would be the one litigating these cases, to be honest. <laughs> I thought that there would be like freedom-oriented organizations. So I actually emailed a very prominent freedom legal organization back in March, volunteering to be a plaintiff, not an attorney, because we had the lockdown orders here in New Jersey where Governor Murphy said that he basically prohibited us from traveling out of state. It was very strict. This was March um, of what year? 2020. 2020, right. Yeah. So he did the executive order. I emailed this organization and said I'd volunteer to be a plaintiff for them in New Jersey. And they emailed me back and were just like, Basically, they weren't going to do it. They ended up doing an OSHA mandate case later on, but I feel like they sat on the sidelines for a long time. Because I'm freedom-oriented, I have cases. Like, I've done a lot of First Amendment cases. I've helped a lot of people who are the victims of slap suits, which are strategic lawsuits against public participation. I also have a free speech case that I won at the New Jersey Supreme Court. So when these issues started coming up, some people started reaching out to me because I already had somewhat of a reputation. It was crazy. Like, I've, I've reflected a lot on the last year. And in June, when college students first started calling me, because they were the first ones that got the mandates, I was like, oh, it's no problem. <laughs> we'll just go to court. This isn't constitutional. There's no way that this is going to go forward. So that was sort of like the first wave in how I got involved. And then once I started helping the college students, it's been waves like over the last year. As the mandates have come down from the different levels of government, I've seen very distinct waves of people coming in. So the college students came first, then it was some private sector workers, then it was the public workers, then it was the federal employees. And it's been really kind of crazy how it's unfolded because it has not gone how I expected at all. I, you know, again, I mean, we're mirroring you in, in Ohio. Initially, it was the curfews and the shutdowns. And in fact, our first case is at the Ohio Supreme Court right now. It's a bar that got shut down. Their license said they could stay open until 2 a.m. and they shut them down at 10 p.m. They could have cited many bars with that, but our bar got uh, particularly targeted, I think, because they were vocal about it. 
and that brought on the heat. So what was your uh, first case regarding the mandates? So my first case is a lockdown case. My client was is a man who went out in March 2020 and April 2020. He was arrested twice. He was walking down the highway alone, wearing a mask, carrying a sign that said, fuck the police. And the police pulled him over and charged him with disorderly conduct and violating executive order 107, which was a lockdown order and is also a disorderly conduct offense. So he had another attorney for trial, went to trial, judge convicted him on both counts, said crazy things. Like the transcript says things like, I know it's freedom of speech, but this is a pandemic, sort of like just zero consideration of the of the facts or the constitutionality, particularly because he was protesting. It wasn't like he was just out. He was holding a political sign. So that case is actually being argued June 15th. Is it in this? So it's in the state court of appeal. You took his criminal appeal. Is that what you did? So it was a, it's an appeal from a municipal conviction. So it's actually in the superior court. And then the next step up would be the appellate. But I really, I really think we should win. It's in a county where I would expect the judges to be reasonable. And th- at the end of the day, just putting constitutional issues aside, the executive order let people be outside to walk. And he was walking. So how could he possibly have been convicted? Wow. You have obviously a 1983 cause of action if you wanted to pursue that. And for the folks who are listening, a 1983 cause of action is because of the civil rights violation, you can bring a civil lawsuit to vindicate those rights. It does include damages and attorney fees. So I I would think that would be a superb, uh, superb case to bring. In these types of cases, people need to understand that the attorneys are really out there on a limb. I imagine that you've had issues with funding and you're probably doing a lot of this pro bono. Is that the case? Yeah, pretty much all of my mandate cases are pro bono. Okay, all of them. Well, you guys can donate to Dana. (laughs) She needs your help. She's got a website. Uh, Name your website for folks if they want to help you out. Sure. It's weforlawoffices.com. And I also have a Patreon. So I do a weekly uh, live stream talking about legal cases. And I usually try to, because I have a master's degree in biotechnology. So I try to do one scientific article so people can sign up for that as well. well so I, I would love to post a link to your uh, live stream if you uh, could send that to me when I put this out. Uh, sure. And we, we, get, we get picked up uh, and, and republished in, in various ways as well. So I'd, I'd love to get some help over to you. I, I could go into a parallel. I will tell you real quickly. We had a, a young lady who took her kid to school. Uh, she had been told by, the, by somebody, some administrator at the school, that her son had been exposed and that she should quarantine. And they charged her criminally. And all I did was go to court, basically. I mean, it took a couple of court appearances, but I went to court and I said, where's the order? And they said, well, here's the letter. Here's a fax from the health department. I said, this isn't an order. This is, these are guidelines. You have to have a signed order in Ohio, at least, by your public health department in order to force a quarantine on any individual. So they were absolutely lacking that order. Judge threw it out immediately. That's great. So yeah, that again, you know, we kind of parachuted in. Uh, I I don't know how she reached me. It was three hours away from my office, but we went down there and a couple of hearings got it taken care of. So 
just it's just fascinating to me about the similarities. <laughs> so you also sued President Biden, and that takes some guts. Thank you for having those guts. But tell us a little bit about Smith v. Biden. So Smith v. Biden is challenging the two executive orders, 14042, which is the contractor executive order, and 14043, which is the federal employee executive order. My plaintiffs are two federal employees and one person who works for Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. So that case went in front of, we did get it, we got a hearing on it very, very quick in front of the district court judge. It was down in Camden. So I drove down to Camden to argue the case. And then they wouldn't let me into the courtroom because I didn't have a negative test to show them. And it was funny because when I showed up, the guy who was at security, he said to me, well, where's your vaccine card? And I said, I don't have one. And he goes, well, where's your test? And I'm like, I don't have one of those either. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't, I don't take tests. So they called up, they spoke to the judge. Ultimately, I guess she decided that she couldn't have me in the courtroom. Although my understanding is that they allow jurors into the courtroom regardless, because they have to. So I argued the case from my car. It went very poorly, which didn't surprise me after that reception. And now it's been in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals since January. The issues on appeal, it's a, it's a little different from the other cases that have gone up challenging these orders because in both of those, in the fourth and fifth circuit, I think both have these cases. In those cases, the government argued below that the federal employee claims were preempted by the Civil Service Reform Act. The circuit courts have actually held that it is. I think it's crazy. There's a really good dissent in the fifth circuit opinion. So every time one of these cases comes out, the federal government writes to the third circuit saying, here's another case. We're updating you under Rule 28J. Here's another case where the circuit court held that the CSRA precludes these claims. So we'll see if the third circuit does the same thing. But I think it's unlikely because our district court below entertained that argument by the government and rejected it. Oh, that's fantastic. So there, so there, that case is kind of coming to a head in the third circuit. Is that what I'm hearing? So every case regarding that is going to the third circuit and there'll be kind of an ultimate decider at the appellate level? No. So they haven't consolidated these cases. Okay. That's- so I assume that those are going up to the Supreme Court, but I haven't seen the petitions for cert. I haven't seen anything. So We'll see. But the third circuit come down. If it comes down differently, then it'll create a split. So hopefully the Supreme Court will take it. What's happening to the employees that are objecting to the mandates right now? I mean, where, what's their status in terms of their jobs and things like that? So under the contractor, it's hard to say. I'm not sure what's going on because a lot of these places, even when the executive orders were put on hold, some of the private employers kept them in place. I know at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, my client is still employed. It's just basically, I think she has like an exemption pending or something like that. And with the federal employees, both of them have religious exemptions pending. So they're just in sort of a waiting mode. That, of course, is one of the things that was challenged by the government when we were arguing below. And the court actually suggested that I had done something wrong by not disclosing that they had had religious exemptions. But it's ultimately, it's completely irrelevant because they're just challenging it on the basis of their bodily autonomy which I think is the ultimate issue that we need to deal with here. Yeah, we have a number of the religious exemption cases that we're driving forward on the contractor issue. One thing we did see in our cases that many companies did back down, we had sued four companies at one location. They were all federal contractors. Only one of the four companies, three of the companies, I should say, backed down and allowed people to continue working. 
Of course, this is at a nuclear refining facility where you have very specialized people with security uh, clearances, and it just makes no sense. It creates more dangers to the public by getting rid of these people with decades of expertise, security clearances. It's the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant here in Ohio, which we've learned recently was disassembling Soviet weapons, by the way. And there's plutonium contamination down there which is extremely deadly. So to have any contamination in the community, but that's the type, you know, that's the type of thing that I see is this, the nonsense of taking these people, you know, in a situation like that or in the military or whatever, and you're firing these, these very qualified, very trained, very caring, very patriotic people who are doing very sensitive work. And we're just disregarding them and disregarding their rights. And, and, I, I don't understand that. And I think people don't understand that this is affecting our national security. It's really both in environmental national security and military national security and energy national security. It's just causing chaos. I really appreciate that particular stance because like I said, we had religious exemptions, but I appreciate that overall stance that, that people simply shouldn't be forced to take uh, this shot. Uh, and by the way, I, I did appreciate your wording. Uh, you do try to avoid the use of the word vaccination to the extent you can in your pleadings. And I think that's an important framing. Could you explain to people why you're doing that? Sure. Um, so this is this is this issue is highlighted best in my case against Governor Murphy for the booster mandate. Well, let's move on um, to that. Yeah. Talk to them about okay. what that case is. So it's an issue in all of my cases and I've raised it in them all. So, but the most recent case I think is, is the best situated on this specific issue. So this is a Skenzie v. Murphy and Governor Murphy has executive order 253. No, 286, 253, I think is the testing mandate. <laughs> like I said, too many mandates okay. floating around. In any event, what Governor Murphy basically did is he said that all healthcare workers, anyone who works in a prison, anyone who works in any congregate setting, public or private in the state of New Jersey has to be up to date on their COVID-19 vaccinations. The term up to date is defined in accordance with whatever the CDC says. So essentially what Governor Murphy has done is he requires all public and private healthcare workers or people who work in congregate settings to get additional shots whenever the CDC says so which is galling, but it's particularly galling when you know that the CDC advisory board at the time the Governor Murphy issued this order had actually voted against third shots for people. And it was just that CDC Director Walensky overruled her board. So it's basically one person gets to decide when healthcare workers in New Jersey have to get shots. So one of the main arguments that I make is that in order for Jacobson to apply, the government has to show that it's that it's applicable. And the way that you do that in the law, as you know, is you look at the facts and see which facts are are similar, which ones can be distinguished. And Jacobson is is distinguishable for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is that the the drug at issue in Jacobson was a vaccine, which had a specific meaning at the time that it was decided, which simply meant just for the smallpox vaccine. So the term smallpox vaccine would have been redundant in 1905 when the case was decided. And So that's basically it. It doesn't fall within any definition of the word vaccine. In my booster mandate case, I go through 100 years of history of the word vaccine. It's a little weird the way things happen sometimes, but about two years ago, I had a sudden inclination to start collecting little dictionaries. 
And so literally like right before COVID hit, I went on eBay and I bought like a bunch of old dictionaries. I have dictionaries from the early 1900s, the mid 1950s. A year later, they happened to come in handy. I'm able to open them up and see, like it's a, it's a photocopy to the court of, of the word vaccine in the Webster's 1954 dictionary. Um, I, have, anyway. I have that same dictionary for the same reason. I don't know whether mine's 1954, <laughs> but it's a 1950s Webster's. It's about that thick. And it's for the same damn reason, because the language is shifting uh, under our feet. I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, no, you're right. It's because the definitions were changing so quickly. I felt like I need to collect dictionaries. So if you go through the history of the word vaccine for the last hundred years, there's been a number of expansions to the definition. It started with the vaccine virus. Then it was expanded to microorganisms. Then it was expanded to microorganisms or pieces of microorganisms when like conjugate vaccines were invented. And then it was expanded to uh, mRNA vaccines just in the last year. And so I go through the whole history of that. And I have now challenged the state government three times and the federal government one time to provide a definition for the word vaccine. In my papers, I argue, like, if you're going to say that Jacobson applies, you have to address the issue of whether these shots are vaccines. You can't say that Jacobson applies without making that determination. And both the federal government and the state government have completely and totally dodged this question. They assert that it is a vaccine because the FDA called it a vaccine. However, there's lots of case law saying that courts are not obligated to just accept an agency's designation or label on something. And so it really is up to the courts to, to decide whether this is a vaccine or not. I think that's what it comes down to, at least at the lower level. I am thrilled with that effort that you're making because we have also used Jacobson in our favor because it's always thrown in your face. I'm like, Jacobson favors us. It's a state court decision. And by the way, the smallpox uh, vaccine was immunizing, unlike yeah. what this is. But I had not really gone at directly at the definitional issue. And that's a really important way to, to litigate this. I'm going to steal that from you, Dana, Good. <laughs> uh, because we haven't focused on it that way. But I mean, you can see I've par- and I, we, it's literally in parallel. I, I literally went and got those old dictionaries because for the same reason. And I've told people to go get old dictionaries. You know, when, when I give a public talk, I'm like, get, a di- get these old dictionaries. So we're at least dealing with language that we agree on in some right. way. That, that's so insightful and I'm going to steal it and I'm going to spread that as far and wide as I can so other lawyers pick up on that. Because they, um, the papers are all on my website. So any lawyer who wants it, like I think that any, they can just grab it off of there and use it as they like. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do as well. I, I, you know, we have Health Freedom Council set up and we've got a whole database of all kinds of things that, that we've collected on there for people. So your generosity is very welcome. We've got to duplicate ourselves as quickly as we can. What's the status of that one is what right now? Senzi versus Murphy, is that correct? Yeah, so all of my cases are stuck. I have TC and JV Messina. That was the first um, non-lockdown mandate, the vaccine mandate case, I guess you would call it, that I instituted. That was last September. We did a motion for preliminary injunction. It was denied. We didn't appeal that up. Now we have dueling summary judgment motions and motions for to dismiss, and that's been pending since January. Mm. I have another case, which is Gottschall Wright v. Murphy. That case is against the testing mandate. It's not a vaccine mandate, but for the teachers, they have a um, mandatory testing for people who haven't taken the shots. 
that the state has moved to dismiss, there's no way that this case will be dismissed because the state admits in its opposition papers that the testing implicates the Fourth Amendment. And there's no case law in their favor. There's lots of case law in our favor concerning the government's inability to conduct drug tests, for example. That has also been pending since January. Smith v. Biden has been pending in the Third Circuit since January. And Skenzie v. Murphy is, I have a, a pending emergency motion that's been pending for two weeks. So we're waiting for the judge to rule on that. First, the judge said that the state doesn't have to file an answer until after she rules on it, but we'll just go right up to the Third Circuit as soon as we get a response on that. And Senzi v. Murphy, I, I understand uh, from the notes here that two of your clients uh, actually got the vaccination, but then were injured by the vaccination. Are, are, you, are you able to discuss the injuries that they experienced? Yes. So Skenzie v. Murphy has four plaintiffs. All of them are fully vaccinated in that they've had two shots. They have all been fired because they're not up to date because they did not get a third shot. Two of my plaintiffs were injured by the first shot. One of them has, her heart has changed. It's not the same since she had the shot. She had incidents immediately afterwards where her heart rate would shoot up. She now has an irregular heartbeat. The second woman has a long history of problems with vaccines and other medications. She has a persistent seizure disorder that she's had since she was a teenager. She has ongoing issues with shingles. She gets shingles constantly. She got shingles three times when she was pregnant with her last child. And of course she got the, she got the J and J because she had to, to keep her job. Her husband also works in healthcare. So they were both under the gun on this. They have six children that they are supporting. She got the J and J and was injured by it. She began to have neurological issues. And so she's unable to get a third shot or a second shot, I guess, in her case. So those are the plaintiffs. And one of the plaintiffs is she's pregnant. She's still pregnant. Obviously after she has the baby, she'll be breastfeeding or or likely breastfeeding. But in any event, so she, I think she's seven months pregnant now. And there's this unbelievable photo of her. I put it on my Twitter. She shared it on her Facebook. She was a labor and delivery nurse. And in the photo, she's super pregnant. It was the day before she was fired. The last um, baby that she helped deliver was her nephew. So it's a photo of her and her sister, both super pregnant in the hospital. And it's so sad. And she was fired the next day for not wanting to get the experimental shot while she's pregnant. So the injured uh, nurse that you talked, or there's two of them, I guess, have they, what have they done in terms of asking for redress for their injuries against their employer, if anything? Nothing. Um, I, the issue of injuries, I, I view the COVID litigation, like looking at it globally, that there's, there's like distinct buckets that we need to sort of deal with. The first bucket is like the lockdown issues and the law and order issues where our, our freedom was literally curtailed during the lockdown stage. The second, I think, are the testing mandates and the vaccine mandates. The third is the injury. And then the fourth is the discrimination, the employment and that sort of thing. I have stuff going in each of the buckets except for the injury bucket. And the reason for that is because I think that we need really good evidence of fraud. I think that it obviously exists. We know that it's there. We know that there were issues with the trials. But I think what we really need is we need a governing body that's going to get us the information to overcome the liability protections and maybe hold people accountable. I I have spoken to a lot of people who are injured. And it's interesting to me because in some cases, I have spoken with their employers on their behalf. 
And the conversations that I have with administrators at these places, like universities, big companies, the lawyers, and it's like they're living in a totally different reality. I think that when I go to them and I say this person was injured by the first shot, they don't want to take the second. Why can't you just grant their exemption? They don't believe the person was injured. It's it's kind of crazy. I feel like when I whenever I talk to, to these people at these places, I'm talking to people who I know have a very different conception of what's going on in the world. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm experiencing that you know, as well. And I, it's very hard to understand. We had a conference, several of the famous doctors, you know, came into town to Columbus and we had vaccine injured testify to them and talk to the public about it. And those testimonies are coming out. React 19 is doing everything they can, but we've also noticed in the vaccine injured in some of the groups that we're aware of that we're getting uh, people who are now at suicidal levels and they are working to intervene and at least let people know that we're paying attention and we're going to try to do something, anything, but you're right. I mean, we have, this is the last bucket. And uh, I I don't know if you know this, but um, I I am uh, privileged to uh, be asked to assist on Brooke Jackson's case against Pfizer. So we are looking at the trials and the issues around that. And we're going to get some limited discovery here, I hope, over the summer that will supplement the documents that are obviously being released publicly. But the whole setup is a prototype contract under something called Other Transactional Authority. And they literally had no quality requirements at all. The contract that Pfizer signed is with the Department of Defense. And it's under the PREP Act, which if you look back at that, that is essentially supposed to deal with a biological attack on the United States. So in some ways, they've admitted that that's happened because they've done it under this PREP Act. But it's a Defense Department contract. It's not a a health and human services contract. And that contract is a prototype agreement. All Pfizer was required to do was deliver a prototype, not a finished product. And it's under this other transactional authority that avoids all federal acquisition regulations and good manufacturing practices. All these common regulations that we just assume are in place at this point are not there. And that's why they're saying they're not liable for fraud and that our allegations need to be dismissed in that case. So Pfizer's own defense is very revealing in terms of the thought processes But back to the injured, I am trying to reach out to workers' compensation attorneys. We're contemplating, obviously, opening up that as an area of practice, because I think there are claims, and a friend of mine has filed a claim under the workers' compensation system for a severely injured person. But our administrative state here in Ohio, I mean, even, even unemployment, because we represent all these employees at these different companies, we have been actually holding unemployment hearings. And that different world that you're talking about, the attorneys on the other side are in that different world. And I'm worried likewise that the hearing officers our judges that are requiring you to be either tested or shot up, they're in that world. I mean, we did have an incident in a court where the judge said everybody's vaccinated can take off their masks and you know, there's a bunch of attorneys on the other side from fight, you know, all these companies and the judge and staff. Well, guess who's sitting there with a mask on that? 
myself and one other attorney from my firm because we didn't take the shot. So, you know, and, and, and then you wonder, I'm sure, you know, you're wondering this too. Well, what's the bias here? And, and are, they're not even realizing how biased they are just by the fact that they think a mask does something or they think that this shot is going to protect you because if you're following what's happening, it's not only another failure, it's creating a permanent immune uh, deficiency response. And in a lot of people, we're also looking at the injuries at the hospitals from the remdesivir and the, and the venting. Very early on, we had nurses come to us say, we're venting people not to save the people, but to protect the staff. And that was said to me blatantly right when that started. You know, they want to keep the air circulation out of the room so that the staff wouldn't get sick. That's why the venting was happening. Yeah. So what ideas do you have on the injury bucket right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I've thought about this a lot and there's, there's a lot of difficult roadblocks. And I think ultimately it comes down to this. I think so many people have been injured, not some by the shots, some for, for other reasons, like children who have developmental issues because they were locked out of schools, people who have become addicted to drugs, like all of the issues caused by the government's response to COVID I don't think that there's going to be, oh, and also in addition to that, you think money damages for potential 1983 actions, like everyone who was subjected to um, testing mandates, I think the testing is gonna be likely to found to violate the fourth amendment. They would all have potential 1983 actions. So there's all of these people who have potential claims for a variety of different reasons. And if the system begins to process those claims in a fair way, it's going to overwhelm the system. There's not going to be enough money to go around. At the same time, the value of the dollar is decreasing rapidly. So there's this strange confluence of events where I think a lot of people are going to be seeking redress and it's not going to be there. So I predict that if people, if, the, if we have a Congress that is remotely concerned about the well-being of the people, that will probably see some sort of like injury compensation funds set up for different people who have been affected in some ways. And I think that a lot of this issue is compounded by the fact that the pharmaceutical companies themselves might have submitted some fraudulent data from clinical trials and things like that. But we saw what J&J did with the asbestos, right? They just create a new company and, and they get rid of all the, the potential liability onto that shell company. So I'm not very hopeful about people recovering from pharmaceutical companies. And on the flip side of that, it was really the government that did most of the lying. It was individual officials who came out and said it was safe and effective. In New Jersey, when you drove around, there were billboards everywhere saying the vaccination is safe and effective. And I don't know that we can really hold the government liable for those things because of sovereign immunity. So when I think about the injuries caused by the shots, caused by all of these other things, I think that we it's hard to talk about that without talking about also accountability, because I don't think that we're going to be able to make people whole again. And the whole purpose of compensating people is to make them whole. But in addition to compensation, people need accountability. So to me, those two things go together. And I think that the way forward is going to probably be political and not legal. I, I think I share that conclusion. I, I think that we're at a point that essentially, you know, we've gone through these several periods where we've sort of refounded the nation. Obviously, the initial founding with the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, I might add, and then Lincoln and the Civil War, 
And then I think we have women's rights that came up with the suffrage movement. And we have certainly the civil rights movement. I don't think people understand this is that it really led to rights for everybody and, and really reestablished this freedom of speech that we experience. I believe that case was Sullivan versus New York Times in terms of protecting our right to criticize our public officials, that that really grew out of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. <clears throat> and uh, Anthony Lewis wrote a great book about that, by the way, a, a, a columnist from years ago, he's since passed, but a great, great book. I think we're at that point. I'm not sure how it's going to come together, but I mean, you and I have both moved and, and, and you framed it as uh, left to right. I feel like that's sort of how we look, but you know, I, we're, what, what I see happening, I mean, I'm consistent about freedom of speech and freedom in general. So we have a lot of people that are waking up to the problem uh, that we face if freedom is taken from us. And we've seen it taken directly by all this government overreach. So I think we're at a point literally where we're going to have to refound the nation. So the political effort is going to be key. And, I, and let me ask you this. I see a lot of hope because one of the things that I see is, you know, we've had this incredible crowdsourcing of medical knowledge, legal knowledge. I've got a client who bought a hospital that was empty that we're going to try to you know, do something with. Wow, that's and, awesome. You know, and travel, Freedom Travel Alliance. Some people may, may be aware of them, you know, so you can travel without the shot. Uh, do you see some of that happening in New Jersey as well? Yeah, so I think that communities are forming and building and people are finding each other. And I do see that happening. I'm concerned about whether it will happen fast enough because I, I you know, and I, it's, it's, it's gotten very hard to predict what, you know, the, the next year will bring in the year after that, because things have been caught, have become so unstable. So yeah, we are doing that. In fact, I founded a group called Freedom Pages. And what I'm trying to do is bring together businesses and people so we can sort of build parallel, not like a parallel society, but, it, but yeah, basically like, you know, we want to keep our money going to businesses that will employ unvaccinated people and, and support freedom and all of this stuff and, and vice versa. So to bring those people together. I, uh, again, the parallels are just, <laughs> we've got the local Liberty business associations that we've set up here in Ohio. I'm, I'm, I didn't help found that, but I just, I'm aware of them. They've been in touch with me. And yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, I think what, I think that is right. I mean, I think what we're seeing is an emergence of a new world. I think that is kind of what's happening is this very nascent new world and new thinking around the ideas of freedom and, and the really basic concepts of limited government that we all thought were in place, but are clearly gone. You and I could go on and on all day, I'm sure. So what's next for you? Right now, I've started doing, so back in November, I have a pretty big email list. A lot of people reached out to me. There was a local radio host, Bill Spadia, who's on 101.5, who really is responsible for raising my profile to the level that it has been raised in New Jersey because he talked about me on the radio all the time. I have a lot of people who have reached out to me concerning discrimination. So a lot of them filed EEOC complaints last fall, and now the investigators are getting to them. So I'm starting to do discrimination. It's interesting because a lot of people I think didn't necessarily, I don't, they're not set up well to put forward a Title VII claim. Some of them are, some of them are not. Most 
are not set up great to do an ADA claim because the definition of disability. I have one case that I'm doing, I'm doing very selective about the ones I take because I think the best ones can maybe pave the way for ones that are maybe not as strong on their face. So one that I'm doing right now is, is really good. It's against a major corporation, but it's still private. It hasn't been filed in court yet. So I don't want to share any personal details, but in any event, this woman clearly should not have been fired. She had doctors that wrote medical exemptions for her saying if she takes the shot, it could kill her. Like she has been in the hospital for every other shot she's ever gotten, really serious issue. But it's interesting because the ADA is clearly not set up for this type of situation and potential allergic reaction doesn't fall very neatly into the definition of disability. So we'll see how that goes with the EEOC. But I am advancing in her case, another argument that I think could have broader application. I think that judges will hate it. I think the EEOC will hate it, but that doesn't mean that (laughs) that I should give it up because when I get up high enough, maybe a judge will like it. So the argument is this, the ADA prohibits discrimination based on disability or a perceived disability. And disability is defined as either something that substantially limits a major life activity or impairs a major bodily function. And an example given in the EEOC regulations is immune system. So based very clearly on the plain language of the ADA, there is an argument that people who have not modified their immune systems by taking these shots are erroneously regarded as having a a major impairment to their immune system. And so discriminating against them based on this would violate the ADA under the plain language of the ADA. I know it's not how they foresaw it being argued, but I do think it fits in there neatly. And I think that this argument has broader implications because technology is advancing so rapidly that when employers begin making demands on the physical bodies of their employees, it started with these shots, but it could very easily morph into other things as well. And so I think regarding people who leave their bodily systems unaltered by medicines, vaccines, other drugs, whatever you want to call them, the ADA can potentially protect that in other fields as well based on this argument. I'm thinking of parallels. (laughs) There are many. I'm just thrilled with your direction here. As attorneys, if you want to participate, I'd like to start having you know, some meetings among the attorneys to share some of this thinking because we've got to spread this. I think we've had a great conversation. I, I know you're very busy with everything that you're doing. And unfortunately, I got to get back to work too. I've got hearings this afternoon that I've got to deal with. But I, I learned something today. I think that the attorneys who listen to you will learn something. And I just can't uh, say enough in terms of my appreciation for the work that you've done and the enlightenment you've brought to me today. <laughs> oh, thank you, Margaret. I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk. Thank you so much. So I'll go ahead and stop the recording. And thanks everybody for listening.